Hello and welcome to The Energy Gang, a discussion show about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Ed Crooks. On the show today, will demand for fossil fuels peak this decade? The future of offshore wind is hanging in the balance? And do we have a new worry about resource security in the energy transition? To discuss these topics, it's a pleasure to welcome back two of our regular guests here on The Energy Gang. Melissa Lott is the Research Director at Columbia University's Centre on Global Energy Policy. Hi, Melissa. How are you? Hey, doing well. The weather has changed. Man, over the weekend, it went from like summertime to, yeah, we're feeling winter now, but I'm not complaining. I like seasons. Indeed. Yeah. And particularly after we had some rather unseasonable warmth during October, didn't we? It's in a way, it's kind of reassuring to see winter is coming. And we're also joined by Amy Myers Jaffe, who's the director of the Energy, Climate Justice and Sustainability Lab at New York University. Hi, Amy. How are you? I am good, but I have had a horrendously overscheduled two days. So I'm a little frazzled today, I have to say. (laughs) Uh, well, look, thank you very much indeed for, for making the time to join us on the Energy Gang. And uh, and thanks you, to you, Melissa, as well. Absolutely. So, we'll get to nerd out and talk about cool topics for all, Amy. So it'll be the, the highlight of your schedule, whatever's on it's it. It's going to be, I, I'm feeling the zen <laughs> mindset already about the relaxation I get from talking about energy matters. Exactly that. This is going to be the fun part of your week. If you've been a bit frazzled, now it's time to chill out. So, I'm not sure if this counts as necessarily a a relaxing topic to think about because there's a lot in it not to chew over. But first thing I wanted to talk about was the International Energy Agency's World Energy Outlook, which is its big annual review of everything going on in the world of energy that's just been published. You may well have seen some of the coverage. One of the headlines that's been attracting a lot of attention is the forecast that On current trends, demand for all three fossil fuels, that is oil and gas and coal, will peak before 2030. So certainly that's good news in terms of progress towards lower carbon energy. And the IEA is also arguing that the pathway to limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees C, which of course is the goal of the Paris Agreement, that requires getting to net zero emissions around about 2050. That path is still open, although they do qualify that by saying as we carry on, as we're going by 2030, that path won't be open anymore. So it's kind of a glass half full, glass half empty, I guess you could say, message there from the IA. And we can come on talk about all of those lines in a moment. Before we do, though, there was something else that really leapt out at me in the report, which I thought was particularly interesting, which was the IEA's emphasis on international cooperation in the energy transition. Worth thinking just briefly about who this message is coming from. The IEA was essentially formed by um, rich country governments, the developed world, during the energy crisis of the 1970s to kind of uh, think about policies for energy security, in particular in the wake of the oil shock of 1973-74. And it still very much reflects the thinking of the developed world, but also other large energy-consuming countries are very much part of the process now. And so it's kind of an institution of international cooperation itself, you could say. Perhaps not surprising that it's saying this, but still I think the emphasis they're putting on it, particularly at the moment, which is that, in the words of uh, Fatih Birol, who's the head of the IA, he says, international cooperation is crucial for accelerating clean energy transitions. And there's quite a big section in the report that talks about current geopolitical tensions, obviously in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and current crisis in the Middle East. And the IEA talks about what they call a low-trust world and how that could be damaging for the energy transition and could certainly impede efforts to move towards 
a lower carbon energy system. All that, I think, is really interesting. There's another good line, actually, which says, everything that's going on in the world of energy points to the vital importance of redoubling collaboration and cooperation, not retreating from them. And certainly, given these various trends at the moment, it does look like perhaps the world is actually retreating from international cooperation right now. And actually, it's true in the world of energy as well, specifically, I think, if you think about things like the US Inflation Reduction Act, which has got a lot of emphasis on boosting domestic production, a lot of tax breaks for manufacturers and energy companies to invest in the US, not elsewhere in the world. If you think about something like the European Union's carbon border adjustment mechanism, which is essentially this new tax on goods being imported into the EU based on their carbon content, essentially the embedded emissions of those products. These all feel like things that different countries, different economies, different regions are doing to kind of put up barriers and to kind of go it alone in energy and climate policy rather than trying to work together. Melissa, what do you think? Is that... Do you recognize that view of the world that I've just been sketching out? Do you think we are actually in the middle of a retreat from international cooperation? So I don't know if I call it a retreat because a retreat, at least when I hear the word in my head, I think of a very binary action where you're, you know, either you're collaborating or you're not. I think that kind of the tide's pulling back a little bit from collaboration and from globalization. I mean, we see pieces of that. Um, and it came on heavy right after Russia invaded Ukraine. Um, so, okay, who is going to be acting who was going to be buying from whom, um, where was there going to be collaboration and cooperation, and where was the conversation and the dialogue simply not open. And we are seeing it between different combinations of countries around the world. And so that's certainly happening. So Ed, when you say retreat, I think full retreat in my head. And with that, you know, when we look at the numbers, a couple different things. One, we're not seeing, you know, some kind of binary switch where you just aren't seeing any cooperation. We're still seeing cooperation. We're still seeing trade. We're still seeing all of that. It is different than it was couple of years ago, but it is still happening um, in huge numbers. But also, I think there's a realization that as we accelerate progress towards net zero energy systems, supply chains aren't set up for any one place to really go it alone. So um, it's just not a practical path forward. It's not the one that we can achieve. So given the tools that we have and our goals, there seems to be a necessity, a clear necessity for some degree of collaboration. Amy, do you see it differently? Is there anything I'm missing? No, I think it's the same. And I would add to that, you know, when it's directed at the sort of supply chains and metals and so forth, I think it leaves out the bigger piece, which is that the countries that form the IEA need to be deploying more capital and doing more to help countries, major countries in the global south participate in clean energy development, in the finance of clean energy development. And I don't think there's enough focus on that. And so I do think that, you know, when we focus on something like, are the U.S. and Europe uh, needing their own supply chains? And is China going to have a separate supply chain? Um, I think there's this other question, which is, it's not just the industrial world that needs to decarbonize. I mean, everybody needs to decarbonize. Um, if we're going to really reach the targets that have been set globally. And so we don't have enough good, innovative financial paradigms for bringing finance for investment in renewables and technologies and to foster technology innovation uh, and jobs in the global south. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And to be fair to the IA, they do absolutely say that. And certainly getting 
uh, capital to flow from rich countries to poorer countries is very much part of what they mean by strengthening international cooperation. Of course, it's well known that this famous, notorious, I guess you'd say, $100 billion a year that was meant to flow from rich countries to poor, which is agreed all the way back in 2009. I think everyone agrees that even that amount, $100 billion a year, is not really enough for everything that would be needed to address climate change, both in terms of mitigation, reducing emissions, and also in adapting to the effects of climate change. But even that $100 billion, the world hasn't got anywhere near to that. As you probably know, there's this new process now running. There's an idea for what kind of replaces that. That commitment, that unmet commitment expires in 2025. There's a new process underway to try and get some kind of new global effort going, which is meant to be finalized by the end of next year. Would you be at all hopeful that the world will actually agree some new mechanism, perhaps which will be more effective in mobilizing those capital flows? Well, you know, one of the ideas that's floating around is to have countries have not just their nationally determined contribution in terms of their own reduction of emissions, but to have a pledge to climate finance. And, you know, we had mission innovation where the countries that participated in those were both countries from industrialized countries and sort of emerging economies like Mexico and, and so forth. And mission innovation was focused on governments doubling their commitment to research and development innovation. Um, and mission innovation has been pretty successful. But this would be getting countries and think about the fact that, you know, we're having COP host is, you know, United Arab Emirates, a leading a leading center for, for global finance. So could we get countries, all countries, to make a pledge for providing global climate finance and all countries that are able to? So not just the OECD, but, you know, broader range of countries uh, that have the financial condition of balance sheet to be able to also participate. And then in addition to that, I think we have to really revisit uh, you know, some of Melissa's colleagues at Columbia have done some really interesting white papers on how to restructure the green bond market, because very few green bonds are issued in local currencies in the global south. And it's a slightly larger, but still very small number of green bonds that can be issued in, you know, major countries in the global south. And with the debt crisis and interest rates and so forth, uh, and the expertise it takes, uh, we really do need like new kinds of financial institutions uh, and instruments. And I'm a big believer in the offsets market in having people really focus down on fixing the offset markets and having that really facilitate regenerative agriculture and other kinds of investments uh, in the global south that would be adaptation-oriented restoration of wetlands and things like that. So I do think that there's like a range of products that could all be discussed at, on the global level and committed to. And uh, we'll see what happens later this year at the climate meetings. Yeah, and I'll say around that paper that uh, my colleague Gautam Jain wrote, you know, he comes from a couple decades and financing big things, knows how green bonds work amongst other other financial mechanisms and tools. But I, I think the word um, minuscule was used in terms of the number of these, you know, existing bonds or when we look back in history that are actually denominated in local currency. Um, so, you know, it's, it's definitely a risk. It's a known risk. And so I think where we are, Ed, in the conversation is I believe transitioning 
to saying, okay, what is the practical pathway forward here? What can we build in terms of a tool? Because we have the demand, we have the technologies, uh, we have the NDCs, we have the need to you know, mitigate climate change and adapt to the change that's already happening. So how do we fundamentally move big amounts of money across large projects um, and large numbers of projects? And so when you step from the space of, to me, 10 million bucks is already a lot of money, but you step into like the hundreds of millions into the billions plus space as you're getting to the you know, big numbers that are needed for the overall transition, this is what I think we're going into COP with in terms of discussions. And around that, there is definitely need for collaboration across borders to figure out how we move money into places who are currently in the early stages of development um, that are more in the emerging economy space, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And as you say, given that the outlook is not completely hopeless globally in terms of international cooperation, you think, what, there's a chance the world will be able to make some progress there? I think, and I am actually pretty confident we will make progress. The question is not, will we make progress? It's, will we make enough progress for the degree, the scale that we're talking about with the energy transition, the speed at which we're talking about moving in order to keep Paris Agreement targets in play and to make them actually a potential feasible pathway forward? So will the progress be enough and will that happen fast enough? Right. Got it. So you talk about the pace of the energy transition. Good opportunity then to get into some of the other interesting lines in the IEA report including this point about peak demand for oil, gas, and coal, they say coming by 2030. I mean, perhaps, well, maybe I should wait to say what I think about that. I mean, what do you think? Is that realistic? Is that plausible? Oh, Amy, who gets to go first? Do you want to go first? Do you want me to? We got so many thoughts. Go. <laughs> yeah. So many thoughts. So many thoughts. So in a partnership with Melissa's Think Tank and UC Davis and uh, other institutions, we did a big deep dive on this question of peak oil demand. I had done it a few years before in the context of a panel at the World Economic Forum Davos. I tried modeling, you know, what would cause the peak and, you know, how would it manifest itself. And I had trouble modeling it to 2030, but I guess some things have moved forward since, since my efforts. But I guess I want to say the following thing. You know, back in 2017, 2018, around that time frame, U.S. gasoline demand was 9.3 million barrels a day. And this past summer, it's been averaging like 8.95 million barrels a day. And that's not a lot. The four-week average in September was actually down 3.6% from the year before at, not, at 8.5 million barrels a day. But part of that, even the IEA had statistics, is the fact that remote work is lowering commuting. We know that in the United States, congestion causes what we call wasted fuel from stop and go movement of vehicles. But China, Sinochem, which is their big you know, downstream refining entity, said that they think their gasoline demand is going to peak this year. IEA is saying China gasoline demand is going to peak next year. And China is seeing a big drop in diesel fuel use, partly because apparently they're not shipping coal around by trucks anymore, um, but also because of the collapse in uh, the real estate sector in China. So you're seeing these hints in big economies uh, that we're already seeing the sort of peaking taking place. And electric cars, you know, haven't quite taken off yet. Um, and, and there are other things that are going on that are, as I call it, digital, um, where we're having, you know, better logistics. So we're using less fuel to deliver e-commerce and other things like that. So 
it's hard to move the needle when, you know, people are constantly saying, hey, oil demand globally is up this year. And so therefore, everything you're saying is just completely inaccurate. But you can see the sort of first signs that we are indeed moving in that direction. I have to say, those facts you just quoted about China, absolutely fascinating, because we started talking about the US, and I was going to push back and say, well, yeah, yeah, fine. But, you know, obviously, uh, demand growth is slowing in the US, and we've been expected to be growing much, if at all. But, you know, it's elsewhere in the world. It's India, Southeast Asia, China. That's where all the demand growth is going to come from. But if even China now has gasoline demand peaking, diesel demand maybe slackening off a bit, that really is very telling. I think that really does show you that something big is happening. And I, and I add to that, Ed, this point that I make a lot when I'm in forums, and then people are very shocked and disagree and then come back to me a day later and say, oh, yeah, you're kind of right. The more we don't do something about climate change, then the worst GDP growth globally is going to be. And we know that from the loss of GDP in Pakistan after the floods, same kind of things in places in Africa. So this mythology that the oil demand world peak crowd talk about, which is that the middle classes of the global south are all going to become wealthy and buy vehicles, uh, they'd have to be able to drive those vehicles around, not in flooding, not in catastrophe situations. The countries would have to have you know, steady progress of, of GDP. And if we're not achieving a big reduction in emissions and temperatures keep rising, we know from academic research and hardcore evidence that the impacts of these emergency disaster events are that it really reduces economic activity, not just for the year it was in the news, but for the following 10 years afterwards. And so I do think one could make the argument that either we're going to have strong climate policy and that's going to lead to a peaking of oil demand, or we're going to have 4% degree rise and that is going to curb GDP growth. And that limited GDP growth is going to reduce and peak oil demand. So in other words, we're definitely heading to the same destination, but there's a nice way to get there and a not so nice way to get there. Precisely. So I'll make two comments that relate to this, uh, Amy. And one is more high level reflecting back on when I was working at the IEA a decade ago, if you can believe that. Um, that decade went really fast. But um, within it, and looking at the models and kind of the degree of effort we had to make to figure peak happening anytime soon, you know. Uh, and the second comment is more about like the social license to operate and what we know in the research around what happens when you have these extreme events to social license to operate. So on the first one, I mean, a decade ago when we were looking at energy transition pathways, the levers you had to pull to in order to see a kind of nearish time peak were huge. You had to pull a lot of different things. You had to make huge assumptions when it came to like compromise growth in some areas and policy action and all kinds of other things. Now, and I just went through this with my colleague, Harry Kennard, who's a researcher here on my team. Um, we were looking at all the different scenarios, OPEC, BP, IEA, others, and seeing what were the key assumptions behind any type of growth or flattening or anything that resulted in a peak kind of later rather than sooner. And Summing it up, we got lots of pretty graphs if anyone wants to nerd out about this, but summing it up, it's like you're on this knife's edge. You do not, to Amy's points, actually have to wiggle things very much or make outlandish assumptions in order to have that peak happen definitely before 2035 
and in many cases before 2030. And so it's one of those things where what if you assume that just little things like road infrastructure doesn't get built out as fast as we might think in the continent of Africa in a number of key countries, or to Amy's point, in some places where infrastructure is built out, it is harmed. Um, those who lived through Katrina and did a lot of driving in the Southeast, like myself, um, remember how terrible the roads were and how much that impacted things. So you can make just a number of assumptions that just impact driving behavior. You put on top of that assumptions around China that are not outlandish. They're actually supported by data and aren't pushing the needle that far. And all of a sudden you're seeing that peak happen. So it's gone from, I need to like put 5,000 pounds of body weight on the end of this massive lever arm to get something to move in a model to I wiggle things. I like have a breath against a part of it. And all of a sudden I'm seeing that peak happen in the models. And, and, and while we're talking about models, let me just weigh in on a quick point. My big thing, you know, having studied digital and doing the Energy Digital Future book is that, you know, we keep having these energy crises. And every time oil prices go up historically, we know that we're able to deploy more energy efficiency technology everywhere, more alternative energy vehicles and other kinds of technologies everywhere. And then more people stop flying and, and so forth because of the expense. And so we're in this sort of crisis trajectory. And you have to ask yourself, if we had another recession, uh, if the war gets worse in either location that is currently has experienced violence, if something else real estate collapses in different locations, if something else or interest rate, you know, lead to a contraction of the global economy for some prolonged period of time. These models that project oil demand is going to keep rising. They have an average of global GDP growth of 3% a year for 25 years. They assume population growth is going to be completely unfettered. They assume that every human being who makes a certain income is going to have a car and it's going to be an IC engine and they're going to drive and commute to work. None of those things might happen. So I just, you know, the more we have price crisis, especially in oil, the faster that we'll get on the trajectories that Melissa is talking about weighing down the scales towards peak. Yeah, look, what is it? Like all models are wrong. Some models are useful, like you're giving us insights. And I say that as a modeler. So there's love for models going on here, but you know the limitations of them, right? And as you say within this, when you look under the hood, no pun intended, the assumptions that you need to change today are not outlandish ones. So when you look at what is required in terms of assumptions around GDP growth, assumptions around population growth, assumptions around the how much different technologies permeate into economies for not just policy reasons, but also just economics. And like we've made advances and there you go, you're more efficient in something. I'm thinking about the, have you guys, do you remember when India decided to buy like 4 billion LEDs and what it did to the, at a certain cost, this was, and what it did to the cost of LED light bulbs? Like, I mean, things like that happen and all of a sudden stuff changes. So within this, the second point I'll make is just around the extreme events, a point again that Amy made there's a lot of literature out there. There's a few researchers in the UK that I follow, but there's a bunch of literature out there about what happens when extreme events happen and over a short period of time, what that does is a social license to operate and people's perception about how bad or good things are going and then what that results in in terms of social tipping points, pushback, policy action, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and also individual consumer behavior. And when we look at where climate change is going and how, when you look at the IPCC report, and we talked about this briefly the other day, Ed, but it's like, the things we thought weren't going to happen until two degrees 
or 1.5 are happening at 1.2, 1.3. Like we're already seeing these effects earlier than we thought. And so the whole calculus around the social license to operate, how social movements happen, like the literature is really strong on the quick response that happens in the face of these extreme events. And so it's another factor in there. And honestly, I don't have to pull that lever or make any assumptions about what those things might do to, again, make these peaks happen sooner rather than later. So just the evidence is piling up that it it doesn't, it's not crazy to think that this could happen pretty soon. So something else I want to throw in here, this feels like it's been a really terrible couple of weeks in terms of news flow about EVs. And, you know, we've had a lot of the big car companies have been reporting earnings that they've been talking about tapping the brakes on investment in EV production capacity. They've been saying how hard it is to make money in that business. They've been saying that uh, consumer demand has been disappointing. There's been some big discounts available. Apparently, this is a great time to buy an EV if you want to go and get one because there are plenty sitting on the lots right now and uh, dealers are having to cut the prices pretty significantly. So... Some people are starting to build, I think, a bit of a narrative about this is kind of the turning point, maybe, or an inflection point, kind of a high watermark for the shift to EVs, which is absolutely crucial in terms of oil demand. Of course, road passenger transport only accounts for about 25% of demand for oil, but it's the bit that's kind of contestable, if you like. It's the bit that is going to be eaten away at by the emerging technology, which is EVs. If EVs don't catch on, and perhaps we have, maybe not immediately, but perhaps in the next year or two, a big kind of correction moment and manufacturers that had been kind of all in on EVs and absolutely committed to going 100% EV change their minds and say, no, we're going to pull back from that. To your point, Melissa, when you talk about what does it take to move the needle, if things are finally balanced, what does it take to really get oil demand kind of on a path when you look forward that's growing significantly again? Could that be the thing that the sort of, essentially, we're in an EV bubble right now and that bubble bursts? I'm a little skeptical, Ed. I'll tell you why. Because car companies only change their manufacturing platforms over like a 10-year cycle. So a company that's saying, hey, we were all in on EVs, but now we're changing our mind. Are they willing to make a 10-year commitment to IC engines? I mean, who is that? Because in Europe, We know that in 2035, several countries have said we're not going to allow the sales of these cars. We have that same dictate in the state of California. The Chinese have tinkered with the idea of passing that policy. So I know that companies feel under pressure today and they might be saying these threatening things, but are they saying that because they're looking for a handout um, or are they saying that um, because they're actually changing their assembly line? Yeah, I mean, I think these are long-term investments. Um, And I think that you can look at individual countries, uh, individual companies within those countries, individual locations, and there might be different stories. But the overall trend seems really strong that there's demand and commitment. Um, And the economics are also there. So I I think there will be a lot of evolution um, in the system, but I I don't see an about face. I don't even see a hard left, right term, whatever it is, you know, um, I, I see forward progress. So there you go. But the numbers could change. And if they do, I will be the first to come on and admit, well, the numbers told me something different. We were wrong. Yeah. <laughs> At the time. Um, but I just, there's so many incentives and so much pushing this forward. It's like, there's tailwind and there's sales at this point to catch that wind. It's not just like a little bit of help. So I just, I don't know. I don't see it's slowing down that much. Hey, listen, all it would take 
is one good run-up to $150 a barrel. And then everybody's going to, you know, stop buying SUVs. All those electric cars that are sitting on the lot are going to find a home. And then I'm going to have a much bigger line uh, at my charging station. And I'll be able to complain more and more and more on the show about the line at my charging station. <laughs> right. And if they've been repaired or not, right, Amy? Because you run into yeah, that. Yeah, they were, they, this weekend, they were still in disrepair. So just saying. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> but I know other places have less trouble. But mm. for some reason or another, my charging station, they don't seem to be able to fix it. That's not doing sales of EVs any good at all, is it? That kind of issue is something they really need to sort that out. One other important qualification I wanted to throw in, of course, we've been talking a little bit about um, demand peaking, I guess a more accurate word for it might be plateauing, right? If you look at the IEA's projections, if you look at other people's forecasts, including ours at Wood Mackenzie, we expect oil demand essentially to level off in the early 2030s, but not decline very steeply, but there's a lot of persistent oil demand on the current trends, assuming that we don't get onto some kind of Paris-aligned pathway, but just on the basis of the trends that we see at the moment, you do get oil demand still being very significant for decades to come. And I wonder what this implies for what oil companies are thinking. Because one of the things that we've seen in the past uh, month or so is a lot of very significant corporate activity. Basically, the largest deals in the oil industry for decades, you've had um, ExxonMobil buying Pioneer Natural Resources and Chevron buying Hess. These are kind of $50, $60 billion deals. A lot of people have been saying that one of the things these deals represents is essentially confidence in the persistence of oil demand long term. You wouldn't be buying another oil company if you didn't think there's going to be very significant demand for your product a long way into the future. What do you, I mean, Amy, what do you think about that? I know you've been looking at these deals. What do you think? Do you read it that way? Is it a vote of confidence in demand for oil? Well, it might be in the minds of the people putting these deals together, but I'm not sure that's really the thing. I mean, maybe no one can say this, but I can because I'm just a university professor. So maybe they're betting that continue wars and other kinds of dislocations are, are going to knock out competitors among the national oil companies or uh, their other competitors. So, for example, BP in its 2023 outlook, uh, and they were a longtime operator in Russia. Uh, they said they expected Russia's oil production to fall from, you know, in excess of 12 million barrels a day today to as low as seven, eight, nine million barrels a day by 2035. So that could be down five million barrels a day just there. And we know that the supply hole of Russian LNG projects that have been put on hold because of sanctions is 39.6 metric tons of LNG per annum. So, you know, just from Russia alone, there's this supply hole that, you know, theoretically the majors could fill. And then some people have skeptically said that because BP and Shell and Total and ENI have much more progressive energy transition strategies, you know, maybe Exxon, Mobil, and Chevron just figured they're going to take the business from those companies. And, you know, we're talking about pretty short cycle reserves. I mean, obviously, Exxon's buying Permian Basin short cycle reserves. So they're thinking they're going to be able to produce those reserves in the, in a number of years, not, you know, 30 years from now, but like soon. And then even for Guyana, you know, that field is gearing up. So are you really buying into that field because you think you're going to be selling 
making a lot of money from that field 20 years from now, or you just think you're going to make making a lot of money from that field, you know, and paying back your costs in the next couple of years. Melissa, what do you think? How are these companies thinking about their long-term strategy in terms of long-term demand for oil and gas? I'll say some of the most interesting conversations I've been a part of uh, since some of the announcements have been made is what Amy was just describing, which is the types of projects that are being acquired and kind of existing fields versus new exploration and just the overall portfolio of these different companies and what it means in terms of where they are. Maybe I'm not in the room, so I'm speculating on this one, to be clear, but maybe they are deciding to hedge risk and where they are not. Um, So where they are confident that this adds to an overall portfolio that will be robust and where where they don't think they're, they shouldn't be investing. But I think time will tell for me on this one. That's just my read on it. We'll see how this plays out. And I mean, maybe they're betting on policy. They feel that the Biden administration has had trouble ever saying that they're going to ban this or that, or we're not going to, you know, we're going to do something to discourage oil and gas exploration in the United States. Like none of that seems to be on the table in the United States. So Buying U.S. reserves. Remember, everybody's focused on Chevron buying Hess to get into Guyana, but you know they also got North Dakota, and of course the Exxon move is just to really consolidate uh, mainly in Texas. So, uh, you know, I think they're kind of betting on our industry here in the United States. It's not a sign of exploration in deep water or no. You know, other kinds of markets that are expensive and have geopolitical risk. And just a final comment, I will say, I don't know if you guys clocked the, you know, in all the quotes that were coming out from Mike Worth and Darren Woods and them. I mean, just the comments, it was always like about driving down emissions, producing lower carbon intensive barrels. Like it was that language was like throughout. And to me, that was actually a really big signal. This wasn't like an afterthought. It was woven into the statements. And I was like, all right, this is different than when we saw mergers in the past. Like, it, it, but, you know, that, that was my read. And I just clocked that, I will say. I have to be sarcastic for two minutes. You know, <laughs> I, 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 I approve Melissa making that point because that is a very valid point. But People called me and talked to me about the history of the last big time. We had a lot of mergers, you know, back in the 90s. And you know what? Are these guys buying at the high or not? Is there something they know that we don't know about what's going to push oil prices high for 10 years? Because it seems like, I mean, and there could be a catastrophe in the next, you know, whatever. But are we really thinking that the price of oil is going to go up for the next 10 years and we had to buy now? to get these deals done now because otherwise the price of oil is going to go higher and it's going to be more expensive to buy these companies. So I had kind of like a just Wall Street analyst knee-jerk reaction to the fact that they seem to be buying share-wise, you know, close to the top. I always love your commentary, Amy. I really do. Um, And I appreciate (laughs) you sharing your thoughts on it. I really, really do. Indeed. And it's it's a great point, which is, uh, as you say, what is the price of oil going to be in 10 years' time? We don't know. If we did know, I'm afraid I have to break it to the listeners. We wouldn't be telling you on this podcast. We'd be running off immediately to go into the trade. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, oh man. <laughs> and we'd um, all be returned to Caribbean islands. But yeah. but yeah, we'll see how it plays out. Um, like so many things, you know, we know what we know. Uh, we have different lenses we put on this. We find different pieces of it interesting. And in a few years, we'll see how it plays out and who made a good bet and who didn't. Absolutely. And actually, which is a great segue on to uh, the next subject I want to get on to on this episode, which is, I mean, as Amy's been saying, you know, one thing we can say with a 
great deal of clarity right now is that there is this big strategic divergence, probably as big as it's ever been, between European big oil companies and the American big oil companies. And as you say, Melissa, basically people are placing bets and people are placing bets in very different ways. And the bet the American companies are made, they are doubling down on oil and gas. And the bet that a lot of the European companies are making is they are investing in renewable energy in various ways. And one of the big uh, places where they are making their bets in renewable energy is in offshore wind. And it's a strategy that on the face of it has a lot going for it, because if they're experts in offshore engineering for oil and gas platforms and so on, they should be able to transfer those skills over to build and operate offshore wind assets. Certainly, there's some pretty clear similarities. And so you can see why a lot of companies, BP, Shell, Total Energies, Equinor, all the big European oil companies really have thought that offshore wind is a market they want to play in. But offshore wind just recently, for the past few months, has been going through some really tough challenges. Two big things in particular have been um, really kind of squeezing the industry. There's been a big problem with the supply chain in terms of both components and equipment for offshore wind, building the turbines and so on, and all the infrastructure that you need for installation, just for instance, just the vessels, you know, you probably know these offshore wind turbines are absolutely huge. You require specialist vessels to install them, and they can't be built overnight, and there just aren't enough of them, in particular because governments have set these very ambitious targets for growth, so everyone's been trying to kind of rush to meet these targets, and it turns out that the supply chain can't keep up, and so you've had delays and you've had rising costs. been one big problem. And then the other massive thing that's going on is higher interest rates something I often like to say on this show, which is one of the critical raw materials for renewable energy is money, because so much of the total cost of the energy is in the upfront development cost, and you've got to borrow that money. And so interest rates are really important. And so we're seeing costs for offshore wind rise very significantly, but governments and regulators don't really want to cover those increased costs, because they don't want consumers paying more for their electricity bills. And that's really squeezing the industry pretty painfully at the moment. Amy, what do you think about this when you look at offshore wind and what's happening there? How worried are you about that industry? You know, Ed, I um, I like take a historical perspective. You know, there were very big misstarts in the Gulf of Mexico and deep water back in the 90s, not to date myself. We've seen LNG export terminals that you know, looked like they were going forward and then they had to be renegotiated and, and so forth. So I think any investment in large infrastructure projects come with sort of teething problems. And not to be mean, but, uh, you know, Orsted, first out of the gate with some big projects, had this seabed problem with some of their early projects that really sort of set them back. So I think that I kind of see it as sort of teething problems as opposed to sort of a condemnation of the industry, you know, thinking that they're just not going to get off the ground. You know, the IEA had this, you know, new report out uh, that's been written about uh, this week. And one of the statistics was that, you know, mainly because of the changes in turbine sizes and, you know, sort of progression there, costs actually fell uh, in this industry from between 2010 and 2021 by 60%. So now we're having this, you know, opposite trend where the projects are turning out to be more expensive, 
and we have the interest rate problem, and we have the supply chain problem. But I think that it'd be better if that wasn't happening, you know, given all the other things happening in the world. Offshore wind is very big potential, and it has the potential to be sort of a more uh, uh, stable, renewable energy source. But it's not the first time that even these very companies that pivoted from the energy industry uh, have had teething problems on large-scale infrastructure projects, either changing economics or technical problems. Um, and so I think they'll push through it. I'll say, so when I look across the numbers, so I mean, what is it? Here in New York State, we've got the goal of nine gigawatts of offshore wind to be working, built, running electricity into the system by 2035. Massachusetts, you'll have that target of, I think it's 5.6 gigawatts of offshore uh, contracts by 27, and then in operations like two, two to three, 2.8 gigawatts by 2030 in New Jersey. I mean, still seems to be. I've been watching the news. They're making some adjustments to the solicitation process for that 11 gigs are going for by 2040, but like it still seems to be going ahead. But when I look at each of the big players, I'm thinking through like Orsted, Equinor, BP, Avangrid, Shell, like the ones that have stepped in and said, actually, we're going to have to, if we can't renegotiate, we're going to have to cancel. That's that's a real tough one. And it's a tough one if states want to hit their goals and if other countries want to hit their goals as well. But sitting here in the Northeast, I got to say, like, it's it's not looking great for the short term. So my question is going to be, how do we actually solve this bit of the equation? Because offshore wind, when you look at hitting climate goals in this region, state-based climate goals, is a significant part of achieving those goals and then staying at those goals once you hit them. The suppliers to offshore wind have become, in the last year or two, also kind of astounding, with the turbine manufacturers actually losing money in the last year. It seems kind of crazy, doesn't it, that here's a booming industry, or supposedly booming, with all these very ambitious targets for growth and plenty of government support, right. but no one's making any money. How come? Well, listen, each delay means that I'm the supplier, and that's a sale I'm not making this year. Um, I'm making that sale in a year or a year after that. And, you know, I think it's been like, it's kind of like a snowball effect. It's been just debilitating across the entire uh, sector. Yeah. And there's a classic coordination problem there where you want to keep the pace of development sort of steady uh, so that the supply chain can expand and add capacity to meet that steady pace of development. And instead, as you say, you get these kind of uh, uncertainties, you get projects being cancelled, you get these kind of lurches where people are saying, well, we're going to delay things and we're not going to have any projects built for a few years, then suddenly we're going to have loads built. And that's what really causes problems. And it just needs to be better planned and structured over a long period of years. Yeah. And I will say, I think we made some steps forward, like in terms of streamlining environmental review processes and stuff for these big chunks of land up here in the Northeast. I think we we fixed some sticky points, but as you say, I mean, we haven't fixed all the sticky points that it comes to scaling this stuff, which is not the simplest equipment and not the simplest place to build it. Um, and are some of the first really large commercial projects, especially here in the Northeast, um, for this type of technology. I mean, we're looking at some pretty big numbers. And again, I think it's worth being clear that not all the news has been bad. So in York, for instance, so there was an issue there where there were four big projects that had um, got approvals to go ahead with funding packages. And they then said, well, because our costs have increased very significantly, we need a lot more money to be financially viable. They put that to the New York regulator and the New York regulator said, no, um, you can't do that. 
we had a deal, you agreed certain packages, we're not going to increase the amount that you're going to get. So that seemed like a real blow to the industry in New York, and that was just a few weeks ago. Then last week, we had uh, three new projects going ahead and signing agreements, and apparently everyone being very happy with that. Even so, though, the thing that kind of leapt out at me, if you crunch the numbers on those three projects that are going ahead, the average price for the power coming out of those three new planned projects in New York State is $145 per megawatt hour in nominal terms. I think in real terms over the life of the contract, it's about $96, $97 per megawatt hour. But that that figure, $145, that does seem like pretty expensive electricity to me. If you look at the costs of power coming out of the Vogel nuclear plant in Georgia, which everybody hated and was wildly unpopular because it went so far behind schedule and so much over budget. I think the cost of the power coming out there has been estimated something between $120 to $190 per megawatt hour. So cost of offshore wind is not kind of crazily outside that ballpark, it seems. And so question, but I don't know what you think about this, but um, if we're going to spend all this money on offshore wind, why don't we just build some new nuclear plants instead? Oh, man. Pandora's box. I feel like I'm taking the top off it. And we're going to, we need like three hours to go into this. And I'm just being, being real. <laughs> a whole but other I, I will say yeah. some things to start that conversation. One, when we talk about like the profile of technologies we want, one thing I do think it is good to move away with whenever possible, and it's very complicated. I get that, is this whole idea of individual project costs versus total systems costs to actually keep things down. And so if we don't build offshore wind and a lot of, different regions have basically said, we're not building new nuclear. Um, Or other regions have said, we'll repower. And even other regions of the US, fine. But it's like, if we're not going to be willing to build certain technologies, which ones are we going to be able to build? And then how do we make sure the total system costs? So the cost of the bill at your house at the end of the day is not going up tremendously. And there's a lot of different ways we can do that. But offshore wind is a valuable resource. So it's one of those things where We can get into the debate of exactly what the gigawatt target should be, Um, but the bottom line is more than today is probably a very good idea given clean electricity goals. Um, So certainly when I look at the numbers, nuclear is one of the only firm dispatchable power plant technologies that we have today that's proven um, and big parts of the world are actually okay with using it. And so we should progress there. If it's a non-starter, okay, well, what's the alternative is my question. Do you have geothermal resource? Are your big hydro plants going to work? You know, Do you have access to them? And also, what are you complementing it with to keep the cost down? So onshore wind is great in some parts of the world, especially where we have land. But on the offshore side of things, it feels like a tricky set of circumstances that we need to figure out. Um, and to your point, the numbers may seem high. But actually, are they is the question mark when you look at total system and how they complement other resources. I put the top back on the box. If you didn't notice that, I was like, all right, because it's such a big discussion about how we build these things out effectively and keep costs down and reliability high. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we probably should not uh, take the lid back off that box again. (laughs) Not today. From what you've been saying, Amy, you would broadly speaking agree with that, right? That as you say, given the prospect for kind of improving the technology, driving costs down in the future, at least for now, we should stick with offshore wind. It's worth persisting with it. I think we should stick with it. And people don't like the fact that large-scale energy projects of any kind take a long time. But if you're talking about net powers, 
thermal natural gas, new technology that's going to not emit carbon as part of its process. That sounds exciting, too, if you're in the natural gas industry, but tell me when you build a second plant or a fifth plant or a hundredth plant. I mean, all these things, same thing with small nuclear reactors. Like, again, tell me when you get to your 50th plant. I think that we're farther along in offshore wind. Like I said, you know, over the last decade, we've really crunched costs down. We have a lot of knowledge. You know, Orsted knows what they did wrong with the cables and the seabed floor. The industry has a tremendous amount of expertise. We're also talking about floating wind platforms. I think we're going to get there. And I see this as a hiccup. You know, I think the reason why we're talking about it not being a hiccup is that the oil industry would like you to think that it's got some giant hiccup. And, you know, if I'm one of the companies that's buying reserves and didn't lose money in offshore wind, I feel vindicated. Right. But let me remind them that they got money from Congress to do deep water exploration drilling for years, for years. They got subsidies. So this is just polemics, in my view. All these technologies, the larger the scale, the more likely something's going to go wrong. And if you're an investor, you know, going back to what I said a couple of shows ago, you know, I want to know how high is your execution risk? Are you a company that executes well? And when you're a state looking for somebody to put in offshore wind, that's a critical feature. That's a great point about scale, about the sheer scale of the energy industry, the scale of the demand that has to be met, the scale of all the activities that go on around the world in order to provide the energy that we need. It is just mind-blowing. You know, I think about this stuff literally every day, many times a day. And still, when I kind of stop and think about it in the terms which you're just talking about it, it kind of blows my mind a little bit. So with our minds suitably blown that way, and I can see Melissa just miming, putting a lid back on the back on the box again. I'm not going to. I'm not going to. We should move on. There is one more thing I want to talk about uh, before we go today. Jumping back to this, uh, the International Energy Agency World Energy Outlook report, and this question about international cooperation, because Another thing that they were talking about in that report was this question of China's dominance of global supply chains for minerals and products that are critical to the energy transition. And the reason I wanted to come back to that is just because I think we had a really interesting example of that over the past couple of weeks, which is the case of graphite. Now, I have to admit, I had not thought a massive amount about graphite before a couple of weeks ago. Graphite, of course, is though absolutely essential in the transition because it's essential for lithium-ion batteries. Most anodes of lithium-ion batteries are made up of graphite. And we've talked about this in the past in terms of battery chemistry and changing battery chemistry. And sometimes you can kind of swap out different materials and you can use something else. For instance, you can have lithium-ion phosphate batteries instead of lithium-nickel-cobalt-manganese batteries. So you can, if you're worried about reliance on cobalt, you can swap out the cobalt, use a different chemistry. You don't have to be so reliant on that in the future. But for graphite, there basically is no alternative. And China, not in kind of primary production of graphite, but in terms of processed graphite, is absolutely dominant. For one crucial form of graphite, which is called spherical graphite, that's used in battery anodes, China has more than 99% of all global production. So when the Chinese government announced a couple of weeks ago they were putting export restrictions on graphite, 
everyone sat up and took notice. And as I say, people who probably hadn't been thinking about graphite that much started thinking about it. Certainly, everyone in the battery and electric vehicle industry worldwide started paying very close attention to it. When you look at what China was saying about the reasons for doing what it was doing, it said, oh, this is about national security reasons, and that's why we're having to restrict exports. And I mean, maybe perhaps there are some kinds of graphite that are used in missile nose cones and things like that. But actually, if you looked at the grades of graphite where exports are being restricted, a lot of them are absolutely just the grades that are used for making batteries. And there was quite a lot of speculation in the commentary and people saying, well, if you look at really what they're doing, this is retaliation against the US very specifically because of new restrictions on exports of uh, semiconductors and other technology for AI that's been recently imposed by the Biden administration. So question, there's been a lot of theoretical talk about Oh, in the energy transition, as we move to clean energy technologies, there are going to be different kind of vulnerabilities in terms of energy security. Are we seeing one being exposed here? Is graphite going to turn out to be a crucial weakness for consuming countries around the world and a point where China can actually exert a bit of strategic leverage and say, well, look, if you want to get a hold of our graphite, you're going to have to do what we say. I mean, I don't know, Melissa, what do you think? Have you been worrying about graphite much? Is this something that's been on your radar? I've been worried about critical materials. I'm not saying minerals. I'm intentionally saying materials for a while, which is just, when we look at security supply, I find this very interesting to talk about, in particular in the 50th anniversary of uh, the Arbol embargo and what we did in terms of creating security in our supplies of fossil fuels and how we think about it when we think about all the critical materials that we in all scenarios, with substitutions, with recycling, all the above, you still are going to need more of, significantly more of a lot of different things. Uh, we're talking about a highly electrified world, not just transportation, not just big batteries moving around in cars, stationary batteries, but a, a bunch of other stuff. I'm thinking about copper and, and other things we've talked about on the show before. But when it comes to like individual particular materials, but also process steps, having the vast majority of that being controlled by one organization, one country, one supplier, of course, brings up questions. And some of the questions I have and concerns that you might have around having a lack of diversification in supply chains is like, what happens if one thing changes that affects that one supplier or that nearly one supplier? How fast can you ramp up other ways to produce that thing you have to have to achieve your goals? Um, and how critical is it if that material goes away? So it's definitely on my mind, but not just for one particular part of the anode of a battery, um, but a lot of different critical materials. Amy, what about you? So I always, you know, come to these things. I move away from electric cars, though I have a story about that too. Mm -hmm. And I focus on Title III because when the United States says we don't want to give high, innovative semiconductor chips, China has had difficulty moving their semiconductor chip industry forward. But if the United States used Title III Defense Production Act and we decided that we're producing graphite because we need it for rocket nozzles and jet engines, I mean, there'd be a disruption. It would take some time, but there's not a technical barrier. And, you know, we have graphite from the refining industry and there's different things you can do for different kinds of applications. So I think in a war setting, it would have a different implication than if it's just a commercial consideration. Uh, and I, I, I 
want to take us back with, with so much history. I, I love that Melissa brought up 73 because we're all like staring at the television set, remembering what happened uh, in the history books from 73. But again, referencing my book, Energy Digital's Future, because what the hell, I'm here on a, on a platform where people could pick up the book. Um, I had a chapter on how in the 1910s, electric cars dominated in American cities. And indeed, there were 6,000 different kind of models of EVs that were sold and marketed in the United States in 1912, $850 a car. And the uh, Baker Electric, which Jay Leno has a replica of, went 40 miles an hour. I mean, it was, it was an established industry when Ford came out with his Model T gasoline car. So what happened? What happened is 1914, World War I, we suddenly needed the lead because most of these cars had lead-acid batteries. We suddenly needed lead for ammunition and for other kinds of weapons, and we needed copper for the war effort. And, um, and all of a sudden, by 1917, you know, uh, the U.S. government is commissioning Ford to supply the military with 50,000 IC engine vehicles to deliver to France. And that really changed how we saw gasoline cars because, you know, the early launch of gasoline cars was not actually positive. It was hard to start them. They idled. People forget. I don't know how many of you actually drive with a clutch anymore. You know, the early clutches were even worse than today's clutches. And I still find today's clutches difficult. So, you know, it really changed history. I mean, you could wonder, like, if we hadn't had World War I, would we still have electric cars? Um, and would we ever stop using them? We'd be in a totally different place today vis-a-vis, you know, adjusting to climate change. That is absolutely fascinating. I had no idea about that connection between the war and the death of that first generation of EVs. That is a really interesting bit of history. You know, people will argue with me. You know, I'm sure some Ford historians will argue with me. But, but in the end, it was a critical feature and, and kind of what we're talking about here is, could there be some kind of international problem, conflict, et cetera, or just trade war, you know, that makes a certain technology less attractive than the pathway it was on? Yeah, I think that's a great point. And just going back to what Melissa was saying, I think it probably turns out there is graphite in other parts of the world. You can get it from refineries as a byproduct of the refining process. You can get it from mines and the reserves scattered all over the world, including in Alaska. So graphite might not be a really great example of a critical material that China can use to kind of impose its will on the world. But that said, as you say, Melissa, it's kind of, it's just a bad idea to rely on a single source for anything. It's good to be diversified. It's true in fossil fuels. It's absolutely equally true in clean energy as well. And so perhaps if this incident does kind of stimulate a few more people to think, well, how do we diversify the graphite supply chain? How do we find other sources of processed graphite, the crucial kinds of graphite that we need to make batteries, then that's going to be a good thing. We do unfortunately just about have to wrap it up there. Before we go very quickly, free electrons, personal items that we might have brought in. Who wants to go first? Melissa, do you want to start? Um, so as we were just chatting about the other day, Ed, I uh, went to the World Economic Forum's Global Future Council meetings in Dubai. I'm part of their Global Future Council 
on the equitable transition. And so what does that mean when you talk about the economics of equitable transition? And um, for anybody who wants to know who's involved in that Global Future Council or any of them, it's all online. Like the list of memberships is all there. And you can see it's a balance of like a third, a third, a third business leaders, you know, senior leaders in the business and industry space, um, senior policymakers and government officials, and then academics and NGOs, kind of a third for each one. And so when we talk about what an equitable transition is, for those who want to see some different pieces of it, I gave two talks that are available online. That was the public parts of the conversation, the non-Chatham House Rules pieces. One was in the opening plenary where it was up there and we had the different GFCs represented around the equitable transition, development, talking about AI and the role of AI. Amy, I bet you'll love that part of it, um, Stuart from Berkeley. But uh, the and the last person was about diseases that are resistant to the treatment options we have, including um, antibiotics. So it just talks about the breadth that the West covers in it. Um, and the second talk in their kind of beta zone TEDx forum that they have, it's TEDx-like, but we talked through kind of different technologies and do I think they can deliver on the promise? Let me guess what you you know what I said <laughs> when it comes to that five-minute talk. Because it's like, yeah, we've got all these technologies. How do we deploy them? What are the non-technical barriers and how do we overcome them? What is the practical pathway forward that doesn't exacerbate equity issues, but actually actively narrows them? How do we think about opportunities, not just minimizing risks? It is a conversation I've just been reflecting on a lot. So I thought I'd mention it as my free electron. And anyone has thoughts after they watch those talks, reach out because um, it's, it's a really complex issue and a really important discussion to have. Yeah, it certainly is. And definitely, yeah, I will do that. I will check out your talk and if I have any opinions, I'll share them. Ed, I can't wait to talk through it. Perhaps we can discuss it on the next show. Certainly, um, be really interested to talk to you about it. Uh, Amy, what's your free electron? So, uh, my free electron is uh, I've been working on the question of the geopolitics of cross-border nice. electricity trade, a topic that is understudied um, and super interesting. Uh, and so I noticed an announcement this week because you all might recall that there was some possible sabotage uh, of the natural gas pipeline between Finland and Estonia. Uh, and then there was some talk about telecom cables between Sweden and Estonia. And now there's new information coming out between Finland and Sweden and Estonia making announcements that they're seeing these three possibly unrelated incidents as being completely related, and they're investigating the presence of adversarial container ships in the region of these so-called accidents, which are now, we're starting to use the word sabotage. And so this is a big issue. I've been looking at the fact that the Baltic states are planning to disconnect themselves from the Russian electricity grid, which they are currently connected to, thinking about other places that are connected to each other by electricity wire, hoping to do balancing of renewables markets across different countries, which can be a, you know, a great opportunity like the Nord Pool or U.S. and Canada. Um, and so looking at the geopolitics of those connections, uh, NATO now has a new unit whose job it is just to protect all these cross-border uh, undersea connections. And, um, and of course, we have to have a cyber concern about it too. So I just feel like this is a new and important area to really focus on if we're talking about the energy transition. Yeah, absolutely. It does sound like those incidents are going to be well worth following in the future to see what more emerges about them. 
So my free electron, I was going to say, is a bit more lighthearted than that because it uh, is about the film that I went to see over the weekend, but actually it's an extremely grim film about a very serious subject. But having said it's grim, I thought it was fantastic, which is the new Martin Scorsese film, Killers of the Flower Moon, which is very highly recommended. Have either of you seen it? I've not seen it. Yeah, I bought the book that it's based on. Yeah, I will. So I, I also, so I'm now reading the book. And you see here, I'm, I'm just waving the book around. Um, It's very long, three and a half hours, and quite slow, but tells a very powerful story, which has very direct relevance to energy, because it's about the Osage people, Native American nation in the state of Oklahoma, who discovered oil or oil was discovered on their land and they became phenomenally wealthy in the years after World War I, some of the richest people in the world. And then their oil rights were basically stolen from them by a campaign of theft and murder and literally dozens of people were killed. It was an absolutely gruesome episode in American history. And the film is sort of telling a story from that and about how part of the story was uncovered. I think there's still a lot that's not really known about what happened to this day. And it's very well told, as I say, very powerful, well worth seeing. And there's lots going on. There's lots of different kind of cross currents to it and certainly kind of ideas about Native Americans and their relationship to white settlers and so on and and the way that the United States was built is a very important part of it, but it's also about the resource curse, if you like, and the idea that if you discover a lot of natural wealth in the form of oil or similar resources, it's not always a good thing. And it's possible for that to rebound very much against you. And obviously, we've seen examples of that all over the world. And this is an example of it happening here in the United States. And I think it's really kind of interesting to think about that and has some important lessons about the resource curse and is very thought-provoking about ways that you can try and prevent it striking people and try and put in place the institutions that mean that if you discover a whole load of natural resource wealth in your territory, you're actually able to benefit from it rather than suffering from it. So highly recommended, well worth a look. So we do then, unfortunately, have to leave it there. But thank you very much indeed, Melissa and Amy. Thanks both for coming in. Always enjoy the conversations. Great to be here. I hope it was a highlight of your day and week. It, it was hundred percent. You, you and Ed, <laughs> Melissa, you and Ed really fulfilled my. I'm like totally chilled out now. I can go back to <laughs> this list of you know check this off, check this off in a in, with a very peaceful mind. Excellent. Delighted to hear it. Well, it's certainly a highlight of my week. I have to say, it's been great talking to you both. Thanks very much to our producers, Sam Nash and Toby Biggins-Gilchrist. And above all, of course, many thanks to all of you for listening. As you know, we really do appreciate your feedback. Please do send us your comments, criticism, corrections, complaints, whatever it might be. Uh, you can even tell us what we're doing right, if there is anything we're doing right. Uh, you can find us and me personally on a variety of social media platforms, and hopefully, whichever one you use, the message will get through eventually. We'll be back in two weeks with all the latest news and views on the energy transition. You should definitely look out for that one. It's going to be a very special Thanksgiving edition. We have a treat in store for you. So please do check that out when it comes. Until then, goodbye.